Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Chiswick, West London. Hello, it's Richard Heller here in South East London, extending a very, very warm welcome to a very special guest today. He's the author of over 30 books. He's been a journalist on the Sunday Times, the Daily Telegraph. He's written for many other media. He's the, he was the first sports news editor of the BBC. Uh, he's been an inspiring cricket captain, especially on tour. And he's our very good friend, Mihir Bose. Morning, Mihir. We're going to be talking with you mainly about Indian cricket, of which um, you're a leading authority, especially in your recent book, Nine Waves. Well, Peter and Richard, thank you very much for having me. And what a flattering um, introduction. Even my wife, who's in PR, couldn't have done better. <laughs> it's well deserved, Mihir. Mihir, I think we ought to really start with the fact that um, the Board of Cricket Control in India is now really the dominant force in world cricket. It's easily the world's richest cricket body, and um, it holds huge sway in world cricket because of the great uh, commercial broadcasting revenues which it commands, but also from being the gatekeeper of sort of bilateral cricket relations with India, which are the, the ones which are the most profitable to all the cricket-playing countries. One consequence of this is that cricket has become the first major sport which is controlled by non-white people. Um, you've done groundbreaking work on discrimination generally in world sport. Cricket generally, I think, has been slower in confronting racism historically than other sports. And do you think this will now change now that India's effectively the boss of world cricket? My fear is it won't change. Uh, Indians have their own problems with caste and so on and so forth. And um, unfortunately, what has happened, India's rise in India, as you say, is the money bags of cricket. Hard it is to believe, but an Indian tour of England provides more money for the English cricket board than an Australian tour. And obviously, Australia will always have the greater emotional impact. And so England always want India to play five tests and so on. And India's power and the IPL and so on is enormous. But Indian board, frankly, the way it's been run um, has no attention to its worldwide role, its need to be a body that, if you like, uses this influence to shape world cricket. And uh, I'm not very optimistic. Now, the new regime under Saurav Ganguly may change things. He's become president. He's the first really prominent cricketer to run Indian cricket. That may change. But at the moment, there are no signs that the Indians are really taking on board the enormous power they have and how much they can influence um, world cricket in the right way. Hmm, that's very depressing. Can you tell us, because not much is known about the BCCI in England, and perhaps not even in India, um, where, where does power lie in the BCCI and particularly how much influence does the Modi government have and, and state governments? Well, it's very interesting. The Board of Control for Cricket in India, of course, was set up during the days of the Raj. And it's actually a, a democracy in, in the, the state associations all have a vote and they vote to elect the office bearers, particularly the president. And for years, it was minor officials who got elected. In fact, at one stage, even the great Dilip Singhji, the nephew of Ranji, who scored a century in his first test against Australia at Lords, um, and Ranji famously got out for 173 and Ranji famously said, 
the boy was always careless. I always wanted a son <laughs> to be scoring a double century against Australia and for me to say the boy was always careless and didn't follow my advice on how to play the cover drive. But anyway, <laughs> the, the point is that um, uh, uh, the Indian board, yes, there is, unlike the Pakistan board where the president of the country is the patron, there is no direct influence, though at various stages, politicians have become president and so on, but there's a lot of friction. The elections take place in the most extraordinary way, the sort of thing that, that Trump should take <laughs> advice on when, when they all meet. And if you have if you have a candidate who wants to win, the state associations who said we're going to vote for you, they're all taken away and kept in hiding in a hotel till the voting moment comes <laughs> and things like that. All these things go on. But what has happened, the new Indian vote has come about because of the judicial intervention of the Indian Supreme Court. That is becoming judicially much more interventionist in life. And that disbanded the old board. And as a result of that, Ganguly, who's quite a, a combative character, uh, he didn't go down very well in Lancashire, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Ganguly story about Lancashire, which Atherton has never really admitted, was when he was batting once uh, at Old Trafford with, and he was, had a sweater on. Then it suddenly got warm. He took his sweater off. Atherton got out and he handed it to Atherton and said, can you take it back, please? You know, <laughs> whether he even said please or not. And Atherton was then the England captain, though. This is a story which is, uh, which I must say, is somewhat apocryphal. They say, because, you know. But anyway, but Ganguly might change things because he's the first time that a former Indian captain, who's got this very very important role in, in Indian cricket, has taken over, and there is the pressure from the Supreme Court to make the organisation much more open, much more transparent, much more aware of his power. Because technically, it's like a, it's it's supposed to be a non-profit organisation, so it's technical constitution, if you like, is in conflict with what it is, which is really a money-making body. That's really fascinating. So what you're saying here is that there was immense corruption, correct word, isn't it, at the BCCI. The authorities in the shape of the Supreme Court intervene, and now we have a a new ownership, as it were, a new new set of people running it, with the president, Ganguly. Now, the structural reasons for the corruption doubtless remain just as they were, i.e. there's enormous amounts of money sloshing about the place. But it's a fascinating question. Has Ganguly got the, basically, it's not just the courage and the independence and the honesty, but also the wit and the intellect to take on the, the corruption? Ganguly certainly is a very determined person. He comes from Bengal. He's, of course, a Brahmin and, you know, very aware of his status, a member of a very rich family. And the one Ganguly story about this, which is encouraging, is that many years ago, uh, I was tipped off um, by somebody high up in the ICC that the Indian board had not investigated a possible cricket corruption story involving one of their players on tour in Sri Lanka. I wrote about it. And then when the board started coming apart as a result of investigation by the police and the Supreme Court, this story was used to try and get rid of the former board president, Srinivasan. And Ganguly, after he started being involved, rang me to find out more about what I knew and things like that. So that suggests that he doesn't want to push things under the carpet. Now, whether he will go on to do things, that is much more difficult to say because in the, you know, there are factions in the Indian board still, there are sort of 
small state organizations that have their own agenda, all of whom have a vote, you see. And if you like, that's the perils of democracy uh, in that sense. So how much Ganguly will be able to do things, I don't know. But he certainly shows signs of wanting to reshape the Indian board. He's very proud that when he was captain, he reshaped the Indian cricket team, made them much more determined to win, much more determined to show that this was not the old Nampi Pampi India. And he might he might want to do that uh, at the board level as well. In nine waves, uh, Mir, you mentioned, understandably, the total freeze on bilateral cricket relations with Pakistan, which is um, an outcome of, um, of politics. A huge loss for all cricket lovers, not just in India and Pakistan. Who's... Um, uh, I won't say whose fault is it, but um, any Pakistan-India series would be hugely popular wherever it's played. It would be a huge commercial opportunity. Do you see yourself any way to bypass the politics in the way to get it played? I'm afraid sadly not, because the way the Modi government is ruling India... And there's no question Narendra Modi wants to change the secular nature of India, this Hindutva, you know. He wants to make India a Hindu country. And when I have um, been on Indian television talking about this, it's very, very clear that um, cricket relations between India and Pakistan are now seen uh, as a, a political thing that to play Pakistan, the Indian Pakistan only play each other at a world cricket event like the World Cup or the T20 or so on, outside India or Pakistan. And what is interesting about this, what is sad about this story, is that for over the years, even when India and Pakistan had conflicts, they went to wars, the Indian board and the Pakistan cricket board actually got along very well together. And in and about 20 years ago, when both India and Pakistan wanted to stage the World Cup, they actually got together against the English cricket board mm. and in effect mm. ambushed English cricket board at launch and um, and it was very interesting at that stage the people who were running the Indian board particularly Mr. Bindra wanted um, legal help and they and Bindra who I knew came to me and I, I gave them a legal contact who actually helped uh, them you know sort of go through the um, technicalities of the ICC code and all that sort of stuff and, and I mention all that to show how closely they work together then and even individual cricketers get on very well for instance and this is a very famous story in 19 1971, both Pakistan and India toured this country. Pakistan just failed to beat England. India went on to beat England, that historic match at the Oval. And Zahir Abbas, who had made his, you know, absolute brilliant um, impression that, absolutely, and uh, um, that summer, he, that on the day of the test when India were chasing the runs, he actually went into the Indian dressing room and said to the lads, good luck, you know, I hope you win and so on and so forth. And recently he's got into the Hall of Fame and Sunil Gavaskar has written in praise of Zahir Abbas. And this is a man who actually destroyed the Indian spin attack some years mm -hmm. later. And, you know, <laughs> made it clear <laughs> that, you know, people like Prasanna and Venkat had to retire. So individually, the cricketers get on very well. Well, but the board now, and, and this is, you know, really, if you like, reflecting the overall political climate in India, which is very hostile to Pakistan. The Indian board don't allow Pakistani cricketers to take part in IPL and so on. And this is what is discouraging. Not that there would be direct political pressure, but the climate in the country is such that India-Pakistan playing a test series, either at India or at Pakistan, I think the cricketers would face danger. The pitch could be dug up. All sorts of things could happen. That's as bad as that. I hadn't realised I was aware of the political problems, the fact that now there'd actually be physical danger to the yeah. players I haven't yeah. got hold of. Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, that's my fear. I don't know whether it happened, but you know that that would make it difficult for the for a tour, a test series to take place. And yet, when India and Pakistan play in England, there is never any trouble. Oh, it's amazing events, a fantastic events. And and, yeah. and I remember going to Old Trafford once in the World Cup, and you know we we all I was then at the Telegraph. We all went there expecting trouble, and I was walking around Old Trafford, and and a couple of um, young boys, I don't know whether they were Pakistani or Indian origin, started to do trouble, and this uh, matriarchal woman of South Asian origin came up and reprimanded them. They immediately said, "Auntie, sorry," you know, and they scuppered away. So there you are, the power of women, <laughs> South Asian women. <laughs> oh. Put them in charge of both boards. <laughs> <laughs> both countries, I'd say. <laughs> yes, why not? Well, yeah. Um, here's some previous guests on our podcast who've suggested that T20 has promoted a fundamental shift in power in cricket, away from national boards, in favour of franchise owners and, and players. Now, the IPL, biggest T20 competition by far in the world, I think is a wholly owned subsidiary the BCCI technically, but is it really under the BCCI's control or is it just sort of a cash cow for it? It's more of the cash cow. And this is where Indian cricket has changed. When I was growing up, which was the years after India had become independent, what had happened in cricket was there was very little money for the players. But what would happen would be that companies would always want to set up their own cricket team. In fact, where I grew up in Mumbai, the Times of India, the local paper, it now claims to be the largest selling English language paper in the world, ran a competition called the Times of India Shield. And every important company wanted to have its own cricket team. The cricketers like Sunil Gavaskar would be employed by them. They didn't have to do anything. They'd go up in the morning, clock in, and then go off to the to the nets and have their nets and so on. And winning that competition was important. Now, what IPL has done is, is something very different. IPL has created a system whereby there, there are these organizations that run it. The people who run the organizations are also, for instance, important members of the Indian Cricket Board. For years, for instance, the board was run by Srinivasan, who had his own Chennai Super Kings, whose son in law was also involved in it. And therefore, that, if you like, has developed this relationship between organizations like Chennai Super Kings, Mumbai Indians, Rajasthan Royals, and so on, which wasn't there. They, they have an interest in both having a cricket team and running the board in the way that wasn't there before. I'm pretty certain, by the way, this is that the owner of the Rajasthan Royals lived in Chiswick for a long time. I don't think he may still be there because he was a fellow parent at one of the local schools about he, 10 years ago. In fact, he still has his offices there. And, oh, he does? And yeah. He does. He still has his offices there. And charming man, by the way. Charming absolutely man. Absolutely yeah. charming man. And the other fact that one should mention about the IPL, the IPL was really set up by this man called uh, Lalith Modi, who's now living in this country. And of course, he's he fell out with the BCCI. He fell out with the Indian government and is now virtually in exile in this country. When he came here, incidentally, um, the first man he, he approached was Tim Bell. As he put it to Tim Bell, he wanted to rip, have his reputation repaired. And the result of which I got some work because Tim said, why don't you get Mihir Bose to interview you and we'll we'll put it on YouTube. So whether it did any good or not, I have no idea. But anyway. Well, it's the secret <laughs> of his rise to power. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, that, if you like, what has happened is the Indian board has discovered marketing. IPL has supposedly the marketing arm is more powerful than the Indian board and decides, if you like, directs policy as to how things are run. And that that relationship is, is in my opinion, not properly monitored, not always very transparent. Interesting. Mihir, I wish we could go through the entire sort of history of <laughs> Indian cricket as you've narrated it, particularly some of the sort of 
eccentric characters who've peopled in the history of Indian cricket, particularly the Maharajas. But um, one big theme that comes out of your book, Nine Waves, is that there was nothing at all inevitable about the rise of Indian cricket, mm. or even that Indi- the cricket would become the major sport of India. It could quite easily have been soccer. And particularly one chapter that fascinated me is that Nehru saved Indian cricket by keeping India in the Commonwealth. And would you like to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that's very interesting. People don't appreciate that football was immensely popular in India. Um, And a a competition called the IFA, Indian Football Association Shield, was set up in Kolkata, or Calcutta as it used to be called, um, a few years after the FA Cup. And football was played. And football, if you you think about it, is a much easier game to play. You take a, you know, the poor boys in India can take a rag and roll it up. And, you know, you have a football, whereas cricket does require some um, equipment, which, which is much more expensive. And um, also, in the way that it never happened with cricket, one of India's greatest men, a man known as Swami Vivekananda, who was a great sage, uh, a great guru and so on, went around the world talking about the wonders of Hinduism. And he once advised his followers, he said, you will get closer to God by playing football rather than reading the Bhagavad Gita, which is the equivalent of the Hindu Bible. And, And nobody... Prickett said that. And when India got independent, the, the point then was that what would happen to the status of cricket, because India first got dominion status, like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and, and all those countries. And the Imperial Cricket Conference, as it then was, its rules said, you have to be a member of the Commonwealth and the Empire to be a member of the ICC. Now, the Indian policy, which had been the policy of the Indian National Congress that took India to freedom, was that the moment India got independent, India would become a republic, like America had become, or like Ireland had become, and would leave the Commonwealth, it was more the empire then, and have relationship with Britain. So therefore, when India became a dominion status, the ICC actually said India has been given provisional status as an ICC member, we will look again. And then in the next few years, it took about three years for India to become a republic, get its own constitution and so on. And at that period, it's very interesting, both Churchill and Attlee wrote to Nehru, pleading letters saying, no, no, don't become a republic. Uh, Don't leave the Commonwealth. Churchill said, you can become a republic. And he cited examples from Roman republics that have been part of the Roman Empire. Attlee said, no, 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 a republic is not in the traditions of India. The king emperor can, can remain the head of India and so on. Nehru rejected all that. But then he he changed Congress policy unilaterally, this former Harrow and Cambridge product, and said, no, India will remain part of the of the Commonwealth. This new Commonwealth was formed where republics could be part of the Commonwealth. The British monarch could be head of the Commonwealth. You know, this new club was formed. Now, why is this important? Because in 1950, as Nehru was taking that decision and as the ICC was meeting to look at whether India should become once again a full member, India had qualified, Indian football team had qualified for the World Cup, the first World Cup held after the war. And they wanted to play that for the World Cup in Brazil. But India then played in bare feet. And they told FIFA, we want to play in bare feet. And FIFA said, don't be stupid, you can't play in bare feet. So India didn't go to the World Cup. Now, imagine the situation. India becomes a republic. India leaves the empire and commonwealth. ICC members have to be part of the commonwealth. India loses its um, ICC membership. India goes and plays football, whether they play good at football or not. But, you know, India plays in the World Cup. It has never played in the World Cup. And um, football, you know, takes off and cricket dies. 
That is a possible scenario. I'm not saying it would have happened, but it's a possible scenario. It's very interesting to compare that to the fate of the United States, which, of course, had a magnificent cricketing tradition in the 19th century, was probably as good as Australia or England in the 1890s, turn of the century. And then, of course, the IC once again, the ICC was crucial. When it was founded, I think it was just after the turn of the century, it was the Imperial Cricket Conference, South Africa, Australia, England. No room for the Republican United States. And they went off and played this very inferior sport called baseball instead. <laughs> and it was lost to, to cricket. Well, baseball is also, though baseball, as you've also, I think, written yourself, Mir, was um, a victim of the infamous marketing campaign by Mr. Spaulding, um, <laughs> um, who did, did a fake history of both cricket and baseball in the United States in order to sell baseball equipment. <laughs> but, but just to sort of, you know, complete the story, when the ICC in, in 1948 at its meeting decided India had provisional status, it actually did not decide when an England team was going to tour. It was only in 1950, after India had agreed to become part of the, remain part of the Commonwealth, that um, that the ICC, which was then actually run by the MCC, it was a committee of the MCC, said, right, the first England tour after independence would be in 1951. Apart from the United States, Ireland had a, um, a big cricketing tradition. And um, when De Valera took over, he really almost tried to stamp out cricket in favour of Irish sports. After independence, was there any um, reaction in India against cricket as the sport of the colonial masters? Did it become relatively less popular? And did people try to even eliminate it in the same way? No, they didn't. And and that is because the nature of British rule in India uh, was very curious. Uh, we've got to understand that. A third of India was actually never ruled by the British. They were ruled by Maharajas. There were about uh, over 560 of them who were independent in the sense in their states, they had their own laws. They had railways the British had built in extend there and all that. And they promoted cricket in a big way, particularly the middling, middling states in order to curry influence with the British. You see, many of them and many Indians had taken note of how Ranji, who was not really a prince, had become a great figure through his cricket. He had actually acquired a kingdom. So they, they had seen that power of influence. And actually, the India-British story is that the Indians liked many of the things the British brought. But the British, having brought them, didn't want Indians to take part. So when the Indians took to English language, my ancestors, they were mocked as babus. You know, Rudyard Kipling famously said when Tagore became the first non-white to win the Nobel Prize, we created this Caliban, he wrote to Ryder uh, Haggard. Um, so, you know, so there know was that. this... If you like, this British resentment, and, and to give you the best example of that is that this main street in Calcutta that the British built was called Theatre Road. And it was only in 1964, which marked the 400 years of um, Shakespeare's birth, the state then ruled by the Congress Party, which had fought for freedom, uh, decided we should celebrate Shakespeare, because Shakespeare can also be a Bengali uh, writer, um, and called it Shakespeare Sarani. Sarani means street. The British would never, have, you know, the British thought, you know, these Indians can't take to British ways. And what happened with cricket was, and this was interesting, the Parsis, who were the, 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 the people who had fled Persia when Iran became Muslim, uh, were the first to take to it. And then the Hindus saw the Parsis taking up. They took to it. Then the Muslims took to it. And of course, it suited the British in a way to emphasize that these were the sort of, you know, India was not a nation. As Churchill had said, call India a nation. You might as well call Equator a nation. So that cricket in India grew as religious teams playing each other. 
The only difference was that the British team was not called Christian, it was called Europeans. Only people with pure European blood could play. And finally, after many years, a rest team was set up, a team called the rest, which composed of Anglo-Indians, people of mixed blood, um, Christians and so on. And Vijay Hazari, the man who led India to its first ever test drive against England, says in his autobiography that it took him great pride to absolutely smash the European attack and score a great century. So if you like, the cricket developed in India through these religious teams playing each other and they played matches without any religious strife against a political background where you know, religious strife was very dominant and Pakistan was about to be created. And therefore, the Indians saw this as, and of course, you know, the Indians joke because Indians have a game called Gilly Dunda, which is a sort of um, bat and stick and ball game. And and basically, the Indians said, oh, no, eventually, I mean, nowadays, Indian uh, writers make fun of that, that cricket is really an Indian game that the English refined. Now, you're talking there about those amazing contests in uh, Bombay to start with in the which have developed into the pentangular. Yeah. And, that, and, of course, Gandhi urged the Hindus not to play for quite a long period, I think, in the 40s, didn't, early 40s, because he wasn't on the side of the war effort, whereas, intriguingly, the... The Muslim teams did play. I'm right about that, aren't you? No, that's not quite right. What happened was Gandhi had no interest in sport. And he says in his autobiography that he took no interest in sport and he had no interest in sport at all. Nehru had an interest in sport. Gandhi had no interest in sport. But Gandhi in the 40s... Uh, in the in the 30s, the pentangular stopped as a result of Gandhi's civil disobedience movement, but 30s, not because of. It, yeah. But in yeah. the 40s, Gandhi, when with with uh, with the political tensions rising as a result of differences between the communities, and Muhammad Ali Jinnah saying that the the Muslims needed a home in Pakistan, you know, the two nation theory that that he had, Gandhi said that religious uh, cricket. Is, is anathema. That is when he intervened. But at that at that time, by then, communal cricket had started declining in value as well. So Gandhi's intervention was to say teams playing religious cricket is wrong because he felt that emphasized the religious yeah, divide of the right. country. It was not the, against uh, as a technique against the Raj so much. But what happened as a result of cricket growing in Mumbai is that it got hold of the public. So many of these cricketers became household names and they developed and they played I mean, you know, the Hindu-Muslim cricketers could come and play in the Indian team. You can see that there is a sense in which some of those pentangular matches, they were, they were incredibly tense events. And, you know, Absolutely. the whole of Mumbai, or as it's now called, would grind to a halt. And, the, and there was a great final, wasn't there, in the early 40s between the Hindu t- Hindus and the Muslims, which was won very narrowly, I think I'm right in saying from memory, by the Muslims. And that, that, there, there is an argument, that's a pro, that is the first Pakistan-India test match. Absolutely. And even today, if you go to Bombay on Kennedy Sea phase, you have these gymkhanas, which were set up where the ground was um, allocated by the then uh, Bombay government. Um, there's Parsi gymkhana, Hindu gymkhana, Muslim gymkhana. And next door, for some reason, is the police gymkhana, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and probably to police them. But, you know, these gymkhanas had for a long time the membership you had to be of that particular religious community uh, and things like that. But, you know, yes, they, they, I mean, the cricket 
players I spoke to, and many of them were alive when I was first writing about Indian cricket, they said these matches took place without any rancor. There were yes, great yeah. matches. There were there were very high scoring matches, you know, and and the great rivalries were were between uh, Vijay Merchant, one of the greatest batsmen who has the second highest uh, first class average in the history of the game, and Mushtaq Ali, who was a Muslim, you know, and mm. Mushtaq was like the Virendra Sehwag of his day, you know. He would actually he would open the batting, and as the bowler ran up, he would he would run out of his crease and try and hit him, you know. And whereas Merchant was the classic, you know, forward defensive stroke and so on, never leave your crease, never lift the ball over the ground, you know, over the outfield and so on. And they got on famously. In fact, they they had a great century standard Old Trafford in the 1936 series um, when uh, as they went out to bat, he was not liked. Merchant was not liked by the then captain of India, a man called Vizi. And um, as he went out to bat, Mushtaq. He was a Maharaja. This he was a Maharaja. Yes. Very minor one. <laughs> Very minor one. He was a bit, bit Billy Bunter. I think his cricketing ability was probably, if I may say, on a par with mine. But uh, there we are. But he was <laughs> far, far inferior. <laughs> it was very interesting. He when had he more came rums than Rolls Royces in this. Or was it more <laughs> Rolls Royces than rums? It- that was Paul Bander. That was oh, Paul right. Bander. He he had you know he he made so few runs that they said he had more more Rolls Royces than runs on that tour. But Vizzy told Mushtaq Ali run Merchant out, and as they went out to bat at Old Trafford, Mushtaq said to Merchant, um, you know the captain has said run you out, and Merchant said you well you better try, and they actually put on a century stand, and Mushtaq <laughs> went on to score a hundred and and so on. So um, I mean you know cricketers individually, and and as I said even today Indian and Pakistani cricketers get on, and actually they. Find Find it when they play together. They find it very amusing to talk in Urdu, you know, and or Hindi, you know, Hindi with Urdu. And and they and they they often, you know, when I speak to them, they said, "Oh yes, when we play against English cricketers, we talk amongst ourselves, and we know they know they can't understand what the, what what we are saying." And and they find it great fun. Before we leave Nero, he was apart from being a sports lover in general, he was a, specifically a cricket lover, wasn't he? I think he played for the, the Indian Parliament, certainly election at election time, didn't he? You always used to see him, you know, on posters as Skipper Nehru in his whites. Absolutely. I, there is no record that his he had any cricketing ability at Harrow, and nobody has discovered, not even his very adoring biographer has discovered, but as Prime Minister of India, he every year had a match, the parliamentarians had a match, and Nehru always dressed in white, went out to bat, and unlike the Maharaja of Kashmir, he didn't go out to bat at four o'clock every day, every match day, and you know, pa- padded up by his bearers. He, he went and played a proper cricket match. And also, after India got independence, the first tour was by the West Indies, and Nehru insisted that a test match be played in Delhi, the capital of India, which was not, a, which was not then a great centre of Indian cricket. Mm. And he also set up the um, Asian Games. So he was interested in sport. And here you must understand that in India, there is a bit of a cultural divide between the intellectuals and the, you know, the arties and the, and the hearties. If you like, we have, we have in this country a hearties, arties versus hearties divide, which is not there. And, and Richard, you would know better because you know America. There's not there in America. But in India, the intellectuals tend to look down on sport and and I find it in India when, when I go if I talk to a professor and so on they'll say oh yes you write about cricket yes with, with, a, with a sort of sneer you know there's there is that sort of and Indian feeling is the intellectual class shouldn't really bother about sport it's it's what they call kale could just running around you know it's not it's not really important I was so intrigued uh Mihir, this amazing thing that Ranji becomes a Maharaja through cricket, rather than, you know, a bit like C.B. Fry being offered the kingdom of Albania. How did that happen, the Ranji story? Remind us. Well, Ranji... 
was uh, born in a place called Namanagar. And there was always in these small, it's a very small state in Western India, not very well managed. And Ranji himself <laughs> was not a very good ruler when he became ruler. And he there was a dispute about who might succeed the Namanagar king. And he was adopted as somebody who might be a successor, but he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't come from royal stock. And he was, of course, a very gifted cricketer. He came to England and he further developed his cricket talent, worked at it, invented the leg glance uh, in the school essay that we read about Ranji by Neville Cardus. We read the phrase, he never played a Christian stroke in his life and all that. And he, of course, became a celebrity cricketer in this country. Uh, I mean, he, he became captain of Sussex. Uh, he was originally not selected at Lords because in those days, test teams were selected by the ground where the matches were played. But Old Trafford played him. He scored 100, as did his nephew, first test against Australia, as did his nephew, Dilip, and later on, the senior Nawab Pathodi. And he became a great figure. And as a result of which, he acquired so much prestige that when he went back to to India, he succeeded to the Nawanagar throne, and then he used that influence. But, and this is interesting, he never helped Indian cricket. DeMello, who played a huge part in the setting mm. up of the uh, board, yeah. said Ranji never helped Indian cricket, and that, you know, he had a parrot, that he loved the parrot more than, than cricket. But what has since emerged is Ranji actually fell in love with a couple of English girls here. But in those days, an Indian marrying an English woman would have been, um, would, wouldn't have been considered proper, the Raj wouldn't have approved, and so on. So Ranji never married her, but he had a secret door in his palace in Nawanagar, and the and this is speculation that that is where she would come in to to his bedroom and so on. I mean, this has not been proved, but there has there is enough circumstantial evidence to uh, suggest that he had English girlfriends who he could never declare. And he died a broken-hearted man, you know, adoring this parrot of his and not doing much for Indian cricket, though the Indian Cricket Championship is named after him, the Ranji, Ranji Trophy. Yeah, it is interesting, this, that he didn't support Indian cricket. The same, of course, applied to his nephew, Duleep, uh, who really, by then you had an Indian test team in the 30s when Duleep was playing for England, and yet Duleep... It didn't seem to have occurred to him. Uh, I think rather ter- I think it feels rather bad that that he went. Yeah, to- I, what what happened was Ranji said when Ranji was asked, shouldn't Duleep play? And Duleep, of course, would have been the natural leader of the Indian team. No question about it. I remember talking to Ames, the great England wicketkeeper, and he said in the 30s, the first name on an England test team would be Duleep. He thought Duleep was the greatest batsman England then had. But Ranji said Duleep is not an Indian cricketer. He's an English cricketer, and he shouldn't be playing for India. And therefore, Duleep never played for India. Uh, and, and funnily enough, years later, after Indian independence, Duleep tried to get elected to the Indian board and was defeated by a man whose name has been forgotten. So, um, but Nehru, interestingly, sent Duleep as High Commissioner to Australia. And, and he, was, he was High Commissioner, which is, you know, a remarkable posting, which is, I think, again, what uh, Richard was asking about uh, Nehru's use of cricket, if you like, as a soft bar. He thought sending Duleep to um, Australia, who'd scored the hundreds against Australia and so on, um, would, would uh, make a statement about India's developing relationship with, with Australia. You made a very, very fascinating point in your book, actually, about the way that Australia, which I hadn't realised, had treated Indian cricket with much more respect than the early England touring sites did, Mihir. Perhaps you should expand on that. Yeah, this is very interesting. As I said, it's sort of a, in my, I can, I can speak from my generation, my generation, which was 
the generation we have called the Midnight Children. I was born a few months before the British left. And we absolutely hungered for everything English. We believed that England was the supreme country. There's a great line in Imran Khan's book where Imran Khan describes um, coming on the 71 tour and being asked by his fellow Pakistani cricketers, does anybody in England ever drop a catch? You know, <laughs> that this, this, we had this belief. In fact, to give you an example of that story, there is in, in Bombay, a Maidan, a park, as you know, you've been, both of you have been to India, this sort of huge open space, which is not really a park, but it's, it's an Indian sort of park, uh, which has produced some great cricketers, Sachin Tendulkar, Shubhash Gupte, a great leg spinner and so on. But the local Times of India cricket correspondent told us that Shivaji Park is important because it's the Patsi of India. Now, Patsi is the place where Len Hutton came from. We didn't know where Patsi was. But having said Shivaji Park was the Patsi of India, we felt that validated it. Yet, England cricket in 51-52, England sent a team to India. Its captain was Nigel Howard, captain of Lancashire, who had never played for England before. His first test as captain in Delhi was also his test debut. <laughs> and, and that team had very few cricketers who had played. And similarly, in 72-73, uh, when England sent another team, Tony Lewis captain, and his first test in Delhi was also his test debut. And, <laughs> and what happened was my generation of Indian, Indian cricket followers never saw the greats of English cr cricketers play in a test match in India. And let me name them. Peter May, Dennis Compton, Bill Edrich, Fred Truman, Jim Laker, Godfrey Evans, Trevor Bailey. And that would be a hell of a team, I'm sure you'll concede. Whereas what Australia did was very interesting. In 1956, Australia is going back from their tour of England. They've lost. They're going back by ship. The ship stops in Bombay. They play a test series. And all the great Australian cricketers were there. I saw Keith Miller. I wanted to bowl like Ray Lindwall. I saw Neil Harvey, wonderful batsman. He destroyed my childhood hero, Shubhash Gupta's bowling, but wonderful to see his, his century. I saw Norman O'Neill, Richie Benno, Wally Grout, Alan Davidson. I can still remember Alan Davidson bowling his, his in-swinger, pitching outside the off-stump and taking Pankaj Roy's leg stump and landing it at the, at the feet of Wally Grout. I saw them all, and I didn't see. I saw the occasional English cricketer playing in a, in a festival match in India, but not playing test cricket. So all the Australians, and this is despite the fact that Australia had a white Australia policy, the 10-pound palm, Indians found it very difficult to migrate to Australia. We didn't know about it and we didn't care. For us, Australia was wonderful. And there was a radio station called Radio Ceylon. It was sort of a, a, a pirate form of you know, Radio Caroline. And to fill in airtime, what it would do, it would broadcast cricket commentaries from Australia. And the time-wise, it helped because... A five-hour time difference meant you could get up in the morning, listen to the broadcast. I used to do that, go off to school. I would come back lunchtime at home to have my lunch and, and follow the final overs. And that's how I followed the 60-61 uh, great series, the tight test, the first time uh, West Indies had a, had a black captain. And I became very popular in my school because I'd go back after lunch and give the score at the end of, end of the day's play. Did you listen to the final denouement? Was it the Joe Solomon run out? Mm. Absolutely. And I and in those days we supported Australia. Absolutely. And mm. I, I was very, very happy when Australia won the final test, you know, which was also very tight, you know, very that's tight the whole series. Mm. And and I read Jack Fingleton's the, the greatest test of all, and I wanted to write like Jack Fingleton, as you know. I've never never written a single sentence worth remembering. Now, you're too modest, Mayor. Mayor, you mentioned a while back that there's 
he thought there was an intellectual bias against sport in, in India. But um, to give one counterexample, Vikram Seth is very fond of cricket, and there's quite a lot of cricket in A Suitable Boy. The, the recent um, television series, the um, the star cricketer was wearing quite the wrong batting gloves. He was wearing a modern <laughs> he was wearing a modern pair, not a which wouldn't have been available in 1952, as I had to point out to them. But um, how has some um, cricket figured in in Indian literature, and for that matter, Indian film? Well, that is a recent phenomenon. It's a phenomenon of the last, you know, Vikram said is, is in, I'm, I'm to, I was talking of the earlier generation of, of writers. They wouldn't have written about sport. They wouldn't have written about cricket. They would have taken their cue from people like Gandhi. Gandhi, for instance, was once asked to help uh, Indian hockey, which was then riding high, winning Olympic golds, uh, financed the 1932 uh, Indian hockey team to Los Angeles at uh, the Olympic Games there. And he said, hockey, what is that? You see, so there was that sort of, you know, uh, sport is something not important. The the modern generation of Indian writers have taken to cricket, have seen cricket as important, and it, the Indian filmmakers were always interested in cricket. In fact, there's a famous story of one of India's greatest film stars, Bollywood's greatest film stars, Raj Kapoor, um, getting the Indian cricket captain to declare. And this was against Australia, <laughs> and I was there as a, as a boy watching it. Though I heard the story later. Um, India had managed to save the test, and you know it was the last few overs of the fifth day split. There was nothing, you know, the match was decided. It was a draw. And you remember, you, you both have played at CCI, which was the great home of Indian cricket. The dressing room opened onto the to the balcony mm. from where the, the players walk out. And Raj Kapoor went into the Indian dressing room and told the captain, declare, come on, yeah. you know, we want to see um, and the uh, couple of Australian batsmen bat. And and, <laughs> and, yeah. Ramch- and uh, an over was going on. And Ramchand said, well, let the over finish and then I'll declare. And then he did declare. So, you know, <laughs> the, the film stars had their own cricket teams. And that has actually grown. And now, of course... The Indian writers. I mean, as I speak to you, I have in front of me a book by Aravind Adiga, who's who's written novels which have won prizes and so on. Um, this novel is called Selection Day, and it's all about an Indian cricketer uh, trying to be like Sachin Tendulkar and how he was marketed and so on. Now that wouldn't have happened when I was a kid. That that sort of writing just wouldn't have happened. Sport was, you know, in the back pages. We were we were, if you like, the the Cinderellas reading sport. I grew up, uh, you know, reading the page from the, from the newspaper from the back, and and that was what it was. Sport was not important, you know. Your your Indian parents told their children, you know, you've got to be engineers, doctors, you know, lawyers. My father wanted me to be a barrister, and um, you know, not cricketers. Now the money available, the success of people like Sachin Tendulkar means that a young young boy who's good, the parents will look at the money and say, yes, maybe maybe we should encourage them. Mm. Um, Mihir, I wish we could talk about all the great um, Indian cricketers you've known and encountered, but I would like to talk particularly about um, Sunil Gavaskar, who's, first of all, because he's, um, I think he's India's first world-beating cricketer, world-class cricketer, through whom they start winning matches fairly regularly, but also because you knew him at school. And first of all, is it really true that um, you taught him his great defensive technique? I wish that was true. But the story about Gavaskar is that he was two years my junior at the Jesuit school, St. Xavier's, that we both went to. And one evening, one afternoon after school, uh, we were by then 14 and we had graduated to wearing trousers as opposed to what Indian calls half pants, which is short. And Sunil, we had these um, garages which were painted red where the school buses um, were housed. And in front of the uh, one of the garages, uh, Sunil in his shorts with his pads coming up almost to his um, his chin, was practicing his forward defensive stroke. This would have been about 4.30 in the afternoon after school had, um, school had finished. 
and um, we were a bunch of us standing watching him in the balcony overlooking the school playground and uh, we started laughing oh look at this boy you know it's pretending to be a cricketer and so on and we had somebody called Father Fritz who was uh, who took us for cricket and English and he said you two pious boys that was a sort of term of abuse he said that boy will play for India. So that, that is my memory of Gavaskan. Of course, I saw him play and so on. But I wish I had taught him the cover drive. But then, <laughs> as you know, I can't play the cover drive myself. So. Oh, well, it reminds me, Mihir, of uh, Peter May being at school with William Rees Mogg, both destined for <laughs> glittering careers in, uh, in rival professions. <laughs> and, and more importantly, si- I think Simon Raven. <laughs> well, was Simon there a Raven? Simon Raven? Simon Raven your... was in the team with Peter May and wrote about it. Um, it that's a wonderful book. Mm, yeah, although then the, the uh, Arms for Oblivion sequence, he's, um, he's very much part of it, Peter May. And uh, Jim Pryor was in that same team. Um, and Judge Popplewell. Uh, was Pryor was, a wicketkeeper? Uh, <laughs> uh, Judge Popplewell, as he became later, was Oliver Popplewell, was the wicketkeeper. Pryor was, a, I think, a middle-order batsman, very reliable. Raven was a, apparently a dashing opener, but uh, we digress. Um, here you've been a uh, perhaps you weren't able to mentor Sunil Gavaskar as we uh, imagined, but you've certainly been a mentor to quite a few cricketers of all ages, particularly as a as a touring captain, and that includes um, Peter and me in um, on two absolutely memorable t- tours of India. Well, both of you were absolutely wonderful tourists. I remember Peter on his first tour with me wearing a Nehru jacket and the way he sort of, of course, he knew India, he'd been there uh, when his father uh, was there, but the way he took to India and so on and so forth. But my most memorable moment of that tour was when we were playing uh, at uh, Chepok, you know, the the practice ground, the England A team were playing. (laughs) (laughs) I must tell the story. I know you probably told it, but let me tell it as captain. I um, brought Peter on to bowl. He he bowls um, some very good leg spin, if I may say so. And um, just before he started to bowl I I adjusted the field uh, and this time I, I told Richard uh, I told you Richard to be on right um, on the um, uh, uh, mid, mid and, wicket uh, deep mid wicket to be deep yep. mid wicket and uh, and um, why? Peter <laughs> bowled the ball that uh, um, I expected him to and the batsman slashed it and it uh, uh, came over your head but instead of um, going back to take it you came forward and then you you only got your palm to the ball and you sort of uh, punched it over as if I you, did a, if I you did were a goalkeeper. spectacular goalkeeping save <laughs> <laughs> which landed in six and the crowd <laughs> who'd been watching this very I think it was Nick Knight playing for England making very few runs turned around and found this so amusing for the rest of the match every time you touched the ball or Peter did anything they burst into into applause and I think that was that was uh, yeah, we got that a one of the moments in... I shall never forget. Uh, it was a painful a... moment seeing Richard. Uh, and of course, the... your your Peter's reaction was to come into the middle of the wicket and have a real rant, throw his cap down, you know, stomp about because he had, he'd lost the chance of getting a wicket. Well, actually, I had a stumping missed off my bowling the previous ball. So then to have Richard <laughs> tip the ball over the line for six was painful. But in the real stadium, they had England A. Nick Knight's team, as you say, Mihir, uh, playing an incredibly boring match against the local first-class team. 
And at that point, the crowd migrated from the main stadium to the nursery ground where we were playing. And we had a very, uh, very, very energetic uh, audience thereafter. Yeah, they, they piled over the walls, didn't they? Over, over the ground and we could see, we had a thing. I think by the end, we had about 2,000 spectators who deserted the um, England A game. Oz was certainly much more colourful. But the other memory of, um, of one of the cricket tours in India was uh, Peter batting at the Wankhede Stadium, which is, of course, the test ground, um, against the local journalist team. I'd won the toss and we decided to bat, which was a grievous error. But Peter very nearly made 100, but then he was run out by Nick Wood. And when Peter remonstrated, Nick Wood said that you've run out two other batsmen, so you deserve yeah. to be run out. So I, I think, think, I think, I think that, that three think other batsmen, actually. I think it's four or five, yeah. if you look at the scorebook. I've, um, Nick Wood was then the political correspondent of the Times, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Incidentally, Mayor, one thing I just want to mention parenthetically, I still have an Indian scorebook from one of the tours, and I love the fact that Indian scorebooks have extra entries from from English ones. There's an entry, which I'd have filled, um, there's an entry for Uring Fieldsman, you know, anybody who drops a catch, and there's an entry for Unlucky Bowler beside it. So, you know, all these moments become immortalised, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, because you see in India, for instance, the uh, the people will go around saying, you know, um, uh, BSC in brackets failed. You know, the, the fact that they haven't got the degree doesn't mean they shouldn't recognise the fact that they actually sat the exams. Very fair. So the fact yeah. that you, um, the fact that it should be Richard Heller, brackets, dropped catch. It should be. It's in this special box called Uring Fielder. Yes. It, there's, there's three entries, miscatches, Uring Fielder, unlucky bowler. Yeah. <laughs> As I say, they're, they're absolutely immortalised. and you, They disappear from an English school book, but they're, they live forever in India. And I think also in Pakistan, I've seen some books like that in Pakistan too. I didn't buy one on our Pakistan <laughs> tours. So out of prudence, I didn't buy one. <laughs> I think at this point, Mihir, I ought to acknowledge a debt which I um, have to you, which is that you gave me my break in journalism. I um, was trying to get into journalism and I went to see you, apply for a job. Uh, and didn't hear from you for some time. And then the phone rang. I remember this vividly. And it was you on the other end of the line. And if you said, Peter, would you play cricket for me next uh, Saturday? Uh, and I said, yes, I will. And I'm delighted to. And then, would you like a job? And that was my break. <laughs> I was here. I became a journalist. It's all thanks to you. Yeah. On that, as great careers built. Can I just mention... Um, Tom King, former Defence Secretary, Northern Ireland Secretary, once told me that um, he had special branch protection. Of course, you know, as a former Northern Ireland Secretary, he once told me that he, um, you know, he picked um, his special branch minders by their cricketing abilities. You know, he'd say, I'd, you know, I'd like an off spinner and a middle order batsman, please, you know, to, to, to play cricket with him. Yeah. But my only regret, Peter, I mean, I saw you play cricket and I sent you out to bat and of the first five balls, you hit four for fours and I said, you know, this chap has talent but my only regret is that you have your own cricket team but you still have White City All-Stars and my Bose Flea Street 11 never managed to beat you so you know that's one thing that I yeah, I feel like um, reconvening the Bose Flea Street 11 Maybe if we only should. we could beat White City All-Stars Well let's do that next year Mihir when the <laughs> yeah. season when gets conditions going allowed. Yeah. 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 Mm. So Mihir you, you've written 30 books uh, and they get better and better 
Um, but now you're you're revisiting a subject you've explored in a very interesting and path-breaking way in the past, which is race and sport. Couldn't be more timely. Perhaps you could tell us about your new book. Yes. What happened is you. Thank you for your very nice compliment. I, I wrote two books which dealt with uh, sport and race. One was uh, the the sporting alien, and the other one was sporting colours, sport and politics in South Africa, where I discussed how cricket and other sports had had dealt with racism. And now a publisher has commissioned me to do a book which is called The Impossible Dream: Sport in a in a non-racial society, how it can get there. And, and I'm looking at, at particularly in this country, the links between sport and national identity and race. And of course, the Black Lives Matter has, uh, movement has, has started. And, and the change, if you like, between what the generation that I spoke about 20 odd years ago saw and what the new generation represented by people like Raheem Sterling um, and, and so on, you know, how they feel about it and what they feel and what they expect. So, you know, it's going to be, I hope, going to be interesting and talking to various people and, and, and looking at whether we can really, because I, I personally think sport has a great role to play. Sport is much more of a unifier than literature or arts or so on. I mean, you know, you don't have to know Spanish to know how great a player Lionel Messi is. Um, you know, many Pakistani cricketers, for instance, don't speak English, but they know how to say, how's that? And, you know, they know how to play cricket. So, whereas I think in literature and music and so on, it's much more tied to the, to the particular cultural um, parameters and sport therefore can reach out to sections of society or break barriers in the way that uh, they can't. I think Richard, you, you've, you've written about this and you've spoken about this in the, in the past, haven't you? Well, I have, Mayor, but your book sounds really very, very timely, and it will be very timely. When, when, when can we expect it to be published? Do we have a date for it? It should be. I've just started writing it. It should be ready by the summer of next year. That, that's the idea anyway. Mm. Be just as timely then, I'm absolutely certain. And, of course, thousands of, as you said, lots and lots of issues um, bubbling up in, um, in English cricket about, about racism, about, um, about discrimination. There's a new story almost every week of some uh, Afro-Caribbean or some uh, Asian-origin cricketer. You know, it's all coming out, isn't it? People are talking about their experiences. Mm. Yeah, t today there's a Yorkshire Muslim cricketer saying he, he thought of killing himself and, you know, the, yep. the discrimination, what he called institutional discrimination in Yorkshire, which is now going to be investigated. Mm. I mean, I mean, these stories are coming out, which, which of course, in the past, often um, people talked about, but they didn't publicly come out and mm. talk about it. Yeah. I don't mean this is a criticism of Yorkshire, but as, as an actual fact, I mean, no Asian player, no Asian origin player played for Yorkshire, even though Asian families have been settling in Yorkshire since... 1950s and even 60s, there's still no Asian origin player in, played for Yorkshire until Sachin Chandulkar as, as an import in the 1990s. Absolutely. But you see, this is where the problem is. I remember going to a function at, at the Oval a couple of two or three years ago uh, to honour Devon Malcolm and, and Darren Goff spoke. And Darren Goff, when, when Devon Malcolm said that Yorkshire excluded people of colour and so on, Darren Goff said, no, 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 that's not true. And you know, this is, I think, the problem that you've got to come to terms, not feel guilty about it or ashamed, but you've got to come to terms with what history was. And, you know, Peter demonstrated this in his brilliant book on, on Dolivera. You know, if you don't do that, you actually don't move forward. Not saying, oh, we should feel ashamed of it. No, but it happened in the past. And therefore, we need to know what happened in the past to make sure that in the future, it doesn't happen. I couldn't agree with you more. And of course, some it is fascinating how those, you know, Rashid and Muin Ali and the England team sort of 
a standing reproach to Islamophobia. Mo Salah in the Liverpool football team is absolutely sensational in the way that he presents this incredibly honourable face uh, and teaches people who are suspicious and bigoted that actually Islam is, is a wonderful thing. You must have discovered a, a great deal of these issues, Mihir, issues of discrimination and racism, when you were ghosting Moeen Ali's autobiography. Yes, indeed. And, and Moeen Ali was fascinating. His father was fascinating. His father described how he had problems at um, Warwickshire, as a result of which Moeen moved to Worcestershire, and how he gave up his job. He worked in a, in a hospital, and he sold chickens in order to finance Moeen's cricket, the things he, he went through. But Moeen himself shows how English cricket, at least this, this group of cricketers, have moved on. Moeen is a very devout um, a Muslim prays five times a day and, of course, doesn't like being near drinks. And Alistair Cook made this a rule that at the end of a, t uh, end of a match, if England had won and the champagne corks were about to pop, he said, no, we should take a photograph with Moen and then after he's gone, we should pop the champagne corks. And, you know, mm. and he said to me that when, it, when he was in Warwickshire, the, the, his fellow cricketers often didn't understand that in the dressing room he, he, he wanted to pray, whereas at Worcester he found the dressing room atmosphere very much better and his great friendship is with Ben Stokes. Now you can't imagine Ben Stokes not wanting a drink, can you? And you know that's hard. That's hard to that's hard to think about. And yet Ben Stokes and he has an absolute bond. And Moen feels um, that the present generation of cricketers understand, as as you said, Peter, that because you're a Muslim and you may pray to Allah and so on, doesn't mean that you are any lesser of a human being or you're a fanatic in any way. Yeah, Mo Salah in Liverpool has been such an amazing role model. I want to ask one last question about Muin because I find this staggering. So when they're playing in Ramadan, uh, he fasts, doesn't he, during a test match? He does indeed. And that means not taking in liquid. I mean, six, six hours on a hot summer's day without taking in li liquid and yet playing elite sport at the highest level. I find that quite astonishing. He says it energises him more to play. Mm. You know that 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 his his faith is so important, so powerful that it energizes him much more. And then after that, when he breaks his fast, he 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 gets this great sense of fulfilment. He is. I do find him an extraordinary man. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit sorry his his form has dipped uh, in the last couple of years because uh, he really is is quite an amazing cricketer. And, and actually, he's a wonderful batsman who high, oh. higher up the order could make a tremendous impact if he get if he gets um, his form right for England. Actually, in your in your in the book which I've read, I mean, he says his favourite position is number three, mm. which maybe is where they should always put him. Mihir, I wish, as I've said, I wish we could have spent all day and even all the weekend talking with you about um, cricket, particularly Indian cricket. Uh, as it is, we have to say goodbye. Thank you very much for being with us. As always with Mihir, we learnt, I learnt so much just talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me. Your podcasts have been absolutely wonderful. And I've said this on my Twitter, uh, they're better than anything TMS has produced. I, I hope they get a, a much wider coverage and, and becomes a feature of our cricket season. Well, thank you for those very kind words, Mahir. It only remains for me to say goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in South East London. And goodbye for me, Peter Oborn, in Chiswick. <laughs>